Hey church, I'm so glad that you decided to, to join me uh, for this sermon. Uh, this has been an unprecedented week of, I know a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear, but here's what I know. When we have unprecedented fear, God shows up with unprecedented joy, hope, and peace. And so that's my prayer uh, for us as a church family and for our culture in general, is that we would experience that joy, hope, and peace that only Jesus brings. Uh, we are waiting with hopeful expectation for the Sunday that we're able to gather again as a church family. And uh, right now, if you want to join us in prayer, we're, we're hopeful that that's going to be Sunday, April 12th, which happens to be Easter Sunday. So what a great, great day if that's the way it plays out. What a great day to gather together, uh, worship, and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, I thought a lot about what I wanted uh, to do today. And uh, I decided that the Holy Spirit had been at work through this whole series. And so I wanted to finish the Genesis series that, that we're in. And so we have two weeks of that left. So this Sunday uh, on video, we'll do Genesis 11. Uh, and then next Sunday, we'll, the first half of it. And then next Sunday, we'll uh, finish up the second half. So thank you again for joining me. Uh, we love you. We're praying for you and uh, are excited to see you in the next few weeks. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the day. We thank you for being a God uh, who is always in control. And uh, I just want to pray right now for uh, anybody listening to this that might be experiencing fear, anxiety, um, depression with what's going on. Just want to pray that your spirit would invade them uh, and just give them a peace and a hope and an assurance in you. We thank you again for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we're going to be studying Genesis chapter 11 today, and I actually have a little bit of history with this text. Back when I was in Bible college, uh, I took a class called Preaching from the Old Testament with Dr. Paul Kisling, who was here last Sunday, uh, preaching uh, on Sunday and then teaching us throughout the weekend. And Paul, uh, Dr. Kisling, excuse me, had an idea in that class that every student was to put together 52 sermon outlines based on the Old Testament. And the idea was that then you would go into the ministry and you'd have like a year of outlines that you could preach from. Well, you might imagine that several of us kind of procrastinated on that assignment. I remember pulling an all-nighter one night, trying to pull these outlines together the night before they were due. And then I got it done. I turned it in. And when I got it back, I was kind of going over uh, my grade. And I came to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel that we're going to be looking at today. And on that outline, it didn't say A, it didn't say B or C. That wasn't the grade I got. All it said on the outline was no. I scored a no. And so we are preaching on that text today. I am not using that outline. Uh, I'm using a new outline that I think is hopefully, hopefully better. Hopefully I've improved in the last 20 years. And so we are going to be in Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if it's once people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. 
come, let us go down and confuse their languages so that they will, un- so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused their language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Remember, one of the kind of key things we've seen in the book of Genesis so far is God's desire to see the whole earth inhabited. God has this heart for the nations. From the very beginning, one of the commands was fill the earth. And and we've seen that command repeated uh, quite a few times. And it's a reminder to us that God has a heart for the nations. God has a heart for all people. And I get that a ton of people uh, in our nation in particular, uh, American culture uh, really has this kind of patriotic undercurrent to it. And listen, there are things to be really proud of as a nation. The freedom our country was based on, it is really cool and something to be proud of. Uh, So celebrate the 4th of July. Fire off as many fireworks as you want to fire off. Barbecue. Remember we learned two weeks ago that God created barbecue. But then let me remind you of two cautions. So feel free to celebrate our country with, with two cautions in mind. Do not allow patriotism to mask godly criticism. There are things that our country has done in the past. There are things that our country does in the present. And there are things that our country will do in the future that are not God-honoring, right, and most certainly shouldn't be celebrated. Don't allow your patriotism to mask your sense of holiness. The other caution I would say is don't allow your patriotism to remind you, to to, uh, blind you from the reality that God is for the nations. He's not just for America. He's not just for us. He has a heart for every man, woman, and child in every nation. That means that we find ourselves or we should find ourselves praying for the nations, not just for ourselves. As we're kind of facing this virus right now, uh, this coronavirus, as as we're kind of walking through that, we want to be reminded to pray for other nations that are struggling other nations that have fear, other nations that are facing anxiety. The other thing that it means is that we find ourselves even praying for our nation's enemies. And our prayer isn't, God, don't let them hurt us. Our prayer isn't, God, help them to love us. Our prayer is, God, help them to love you. Right? That's what we want to pray for. God, would you draw these people to yourself? Would you help them to love you? Because our world needs more of that. God, help them to worship you more. Help them to honor you. Help them to draw near to yourself. God loves that prayer because God loves the nations. So the first problem with the mindset of the people in this text is a disregard of the will of God altogether. God's desire for them to fill the earth. God's desire for them to to go out into the nations. I suppose it doesn't make sense to them. Notice their rationale. We will make a name for ourselves. And the scattering does not make sense to them. They believe we'll be more powerful together. We'll be better in one location. We could be great if we just do what we want to do. So here's what happens in this text. They chose their wisdom. They chose their thoughts. They chose their idea. And 
often this is the basis of sin. This is the basis of really bad decisions. That God, I know you are calling me to be generous, but I think it would be better if I bought fill in the blank. Or God, I know that you are calling me to sexual purity, but I think it would be better if fill in the blank. God, I know that you are calling me to forgive, but I think it would be better if I held on to my anger. God, I know you are calling me to peace, but I think it would be better for me to hold on to my fears. I've noticed that over the last couple weeks of this virus scare, that every once in a while I would come across a friend that had a message like, uh, don't be afraid, calm down, uh, uh, you know, that, that whole thing. And what I would often find is that within that thread, within that comment thread, there was a lot of anger uh, directed to the person that posted that. We often like to hold on to our fears. Uh, they, they, they provide something for us. Some of us are even addicted to our fear, but listen, it is not good for us to be this afraid. Psalm 23 says that God desires to lead us to quiet waters. That is God's desire in this season of our nation, is that God's desire is to lead us to the still waters, to the quiet waters. But here's what that's gonna take. It's gonna take us trusting that he's gonna be able to do that, laying down our fear, laying down our anxiety, and following him. Following him to the still waters. So God had said, scatter, fill the nations, fill the earth, and the people decide we're not going to do that. Instead, and notice again, their, their thought process and their desire, instead, we are going to make our name great. God, we're going to defy your word, we're going to defy your command, and we are going to make our name great. Dr. Paul Kisling said, uh, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, Babel is one of the symbolic images used throughout the Bible to depict humanity's tendency to build our own autonomous lives on the backs of the weak without regard for God's purpose in creating us. Babel stands for the mighty persecuting Roman Empire in the book of Revelation. And in Isaiah's oracles against the foreign nations stands uh, for both the literal Babylon and the entire system of the world's empires which fight against God and his people. It's true, isn't it? The desire to make your name great, the, the desire for power often results in the mistreatment of others. You see it in history, right? One example is slavery, that those that had the means and those that had the power to would bring slaves in to work their land, profit their business, to make their name great. So you see it in history. Uh, you see it in governments. A lot of governments are structured to take advantage of the poor in order to maintain power and keep control. There's a story right now about a few of our own senators that cashed out stock before this whole kind of crisis took hold. It's a desire to make your name great, to increase your wealth, to increase your power. You see it when it's directed at you. Have you ever had a boss 
uh, or worked for someone that you just knew they were all about themselves. They were all about their career. They were all about their power. They were all about making their name great. And so when the team had a failure, this boss would get irrationally angry. And when the team had a success, they would praise all, they would hog all the praise and glory for themselves. That is a desire to make our name great. And it's easy for me to see it in history. It's easy for me to see it in government. It's easy for me to see it in you. And it's easier for you to see it in me. It's harder to see it in ourselves. But I want to ask God to convict me of this when, it, when it's there, that when I start to view people as pawns to accomplish what I want to accomplish, it's hard to see that in me. It's hard for you to see that in you. But this is one of the challenges of power. And make no mistake about it, we all have a certain amount of power. But often, power often seeks to make our name great on the backs of other people, uh, to take advantage of the poor, to take advantage of the powerless, to take advantage of the people around us in order to make ourselves great. I'm reminded of something Jesus said one time. A, a teacher came and said, teacher, which is the, a person came to Jesus and said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. And I think most people understand the importance of command one. Right, the idea that we are called to love God with our soul and our mind and our strength. This is a love that causes us to worship God. This is a love that causes us to obey God. This is a love that causes us to serve God. This love changes everything. And when you study the law of the Old Testament, the first commands in the Ten Commandments have to do with loving God, not making idols, not worshiping false gods, that, that whole thing. This is a huge part as you read on in the story. This is a huge part of the prophet's job. The prophet would go to Israel. The prophet would go to the people and say, hey, your love of God, loving God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, your love for God is growing cold. You need to address that. But this text isn't about just one command. We see the importance of the command, but this is about two commands. And Jesus says, the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the phrase, the second command is like it. It is really interesting. It carries uh, with it the idea of a coincidental relationship. And we often think about the word coincidence as that there doesn't seem to be any connecting point at all. It's just random. But the true definition of coincidence is there is often a connecting point. It's not just random. There is a reason for the connection. So when Cheryl and I we're first getting to know each other and first dating, we discovered that we both love Michigan State athletics. And it kind of bonded us together. And I remember thinking, man, what a cool coincidence. We both root for the same sports team. And it was coincidental, but it wasn't random. 
When you look at our families and our history, we both grew up in mid-Michigan. I grew up about 20 minutes from Michigan State's campus. Cheryl grew up in West Michigan and later went to Michigan State uh, for, for her college degree. But it wasn't random. When you study our families and you study the region we lived in, you could see how we both would end up Michigan State fans. The first and greatest commandment is that we would love God with our heart and our mind and our strength. Coincidentally, but not randomly, it actually makes perfect sense that people that love God are going to love others. So you see this all throughout the scriptures, this kind of coincidental, not random, coincidental relationship that those that love God tend to be really good at loving others. But one author that talks about it a ton is the Apostle John. And he had this unique friendship with Jesus, this unique relationship. A lot of people say they were best friends. He loved his friend deeply, and he saw how his love for his friend caused him to love others. And he writes about this coincidental relationship. Here's what he says in 1 John 3, starting in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and see his sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. You see him describing this coincidental relationship that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We love him for that decision. Coincidentally, a person that loves him for that decision is going to do the same thing. Coincidental, but not random at all. They're, we're going to lay down our lives for one another. First John 4. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Again, 1 John 4, starting in verse 19. Why? How is this relationship so coincidental that the person that loves God coincidentally, not randomly, coincidentally loves their brother and sister? What, what is the connection? What is the, the, the way to figure out why that happens so often? What, what is the nature of that relationship? And here it is. When you love God, when you really love God, you will start to see his creative purpose for every person. You will start to see the God of creation that designed you and designed me and designed the people watching you, this video with you right now, designed the people that you interact with in, in the community. You will start to see God's creative design for every person and you will love them more. When you love God, you will start to see his redemption for every person. How God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He has a redemptive desire for every person, a, a desire to save them. And when you start to love God and you start to see that, it causes you to love the people around you differently because Jesus loved them so much he laid down his life. When you love God, you will start to see his grace for every person, that his grace is available to everyone. So we tend to want to separate these two commands. 
Love God, love people, but they are forever married to one another. The story of Babel and the story of Babylon and the story of Rome, it is the story in the Bible of a people that love themselves more than God. They love their name more than God's name. And they will do anything. They will disobey God. They will hurt and use other people. They will do anything in order to make their name great. And here's the thing. The story of Babel is meant to stand in stark contrast to to, uh, Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram later Abraham. It stands in stark contrast to the call that God places on Abraham's life. This is in chapter 12, verses one through uh, three or four. It says, then the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And here it is. I will make your name great. God says, I will do that. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the story of the call of Abram is meant to stand in stark contrast to the mindset of the people in Babylon. It is the story of a man who said, I am going to trust God to make my name great. And when you do that, when you say, man, it is not my place to make my name great. It is not to be the focus of my life to make my name great. When you trust God with your name, when you trust God with your ambition, when you trust God with your career, all of a sudden, everything begins to change. When you realize that is God's responsibility, here's what happens. It frees you up to love. Because I don't have to use the people around me to make my name great. God's in charge of making my name great. So it frees me up to love the people around me with a radical, radical love. It frees you up to serve. I don't have to look at everybody around me and say, man, you serve my name. You serve my purposes. You serve my desire. It frees me up to be able to serve the people around me because God's in charge of my name. It frees you up to generosity. I don't have to steal resources from the people around me to further my kingdom and my name and my desire. It frees me up to be radically generous with the people around me. So these two stories back to back are meant to give, it a, to give us a choice. Are you going to be like the people of Babel and later Babylon and later even Rome? that said, we are, I am going to make my own name great and I will use people and I will have them serve me and, and I will live that way so that my name becomes great. Or are we going to be like God's called Abraham and say, man, I'm going to trust God with my name. I'm going to trust God with my career. I'm going to trust God with my ambition. And I'm going to let him do whatever he's going to do. If I live in obscurity, I live in obscurity. Whatever God wants to do with it, I'm going to allow God to do with this. And it's going to free me to love. It's going to free me to serve. It's going to free me to generosity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for, for the lesson of Genesis 11. May we trust in you with our name. May we trust you with our name. May we trust you with our career. 
May we trust you with our ambition and just give that to you right now and then be freed to love and serve and be generous. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his example. It is in his name that we pray, amen. I don't know if you have the ability to do this at home, but right now is the time that we would normally enter into communion as a church family. And it is a a reminder of the example that Jesus shows us, uh, this example from Genesis 11 and 12, that Jesus came and he loved the Father so much and then coincidentally, but not randomly, Coincidentally, his love for God filtered to other people and he loved them and he served them and he was generous with them. And this is an opportunity for for us to remember the bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood as he laid down his life for other people. It's also an opportunity for us to remember in a time of unprecedented fear and anxiety that a lot of people are facing, it is an opportunity to remember the closeness of Jesus, that he draws near to you and he draws near to me. He is not far away, he is close. Jesus does not practice social distancing. He's very close to you. And so it's an opportunity for us to literally, just to feel a little physical thing like bread and to taste a little physical thing like juice and to remember he's close. He's close. I may be quarantined right now. I may be kind of in home with my family and we're not gonna go anywhere for a couple weeks, but this is an opportunity to remember Jesus is close to us. He loves us and he laid down his life for us. I am looking forward with eager expectation to being able to meet together as a church family again. I love you, I'm praying for you, and I look forward to seeing you again. God bless.